Welcome to the Lake Mac Way, where we spend some time with the people who make our city a great place to live and work. What do Vancouver, Bullaroo, New York, Spears Point and Lusaka, Zambia all have in common? The answer is they have all, at some point, had the Pippa Budge Touch. Our curator and operations coordinator at the multi-arts pavilion Mima in Spears Point Park, Pippa has lived a life and she's only just getting started. Welcome to the Lake Mac Way, Pippa. Thanks, Aaron. It's great to be here. I would like you to describe for everyone, please, what a typical day looked like for you in July 2012. What happened when the alarm would go off in, say, July 2012? (laughs) Well, in July 2012, the alarm was going off very early in the morning uh, for me, um, probably about 5 a.m. I was living in a remote safari camp in a place called South Luangwa, which is in Zambia. Uh, It's a very big national park and I was running a remote camp that was about an hour from the closest village and my typical day was getting up very early, which was a challenge because I'm not a morning person. I'd get up, uh, make sure we had a fire going, make sure that um, my team were making tea and coffee and I would sit and watch the sunrise every day and drink coffee and wait for the guests that were staying at uh, at the camp. I'd then spend the day running around in the background, making sure that the eight or so guests that we had staying were having a very wonderful and seamless time on safari. And so a lot of that involved driving around in the bush, setting up surprise picnics for people, making sure all of our food and beverages were delicious uh, and making sure everything was very perfect for all of our guests um, in some very, very warm weather and sometimes very challenging conditions. How and why did you find yourself there? Uh, Sort of by accident. My parents were living in Lusaka, the capital of Zambia at the time, and I'd finished my Masters of Teaching and was not really sure what I wanted to do next, so I thought I'd just take an extended holiday and hang out in Lusaka for a while. And while I was there, a number of different opportunities kind of came up. A friend of a friend had stayed at this camp and and said, oh, hang on, this camp had someone pull out at the last minute um, and they needed someone who was already in the country to come and to come and work at it. And um, so they put me in touch with the safari company. And yeah, a week later, I moved to the bush. You've already mentioned the Masters of Teaching. And I think your yeah. parents play a major role in your exotic approach to life. So let's go <laughs> back to the beginning, shall we? How did the Pippa Budge story start? Well, I grew up in Melbourne and when I was a kid, my dad started working for World Vision and when I was pretty young, um, he got into international development work and so began going on lots of overseas trips, especially to Africa. That's sort of where he specialised at that time and so he was always coming and going and um, bringing back all sorts of souvenirs from around the world and I remember getting faxes from him from hotels in Kenya or Tanzania because he was always off having adventures uh, while we were growing up. I mean, he also grew up part in Hong Kong and um, part in Melbourne. 
as his parents were also, they were missionaries and spent some time in China and Hong Kong. And so he kind of grew up always living in different places and got passed down to me. Upon reflection, I imagine there were a lot of upsides from his approach to life and what that did for you. But growing up, did you appreciate the work he was doing or was it frustrating when everyone else's dad was home at the weekend? Um, no, I think we, we always appreciated the work that he was doing. We've got My family all have a very strong social justice bent. It was just his job. You know, that's what he did. And I actually got to go with him on a work trip when I was 14 and, you know, getting to go to Africa. I went to Zambia and Zimbabwe and Tanzania, places that I just never imagined and got to see how different people lived and explore the world and spent my 15th birthday at Victoria Falls. So I really only saw the perks. Was that a transformative experience in the way you saw the world? Uh, my dad always says he kind of thought I would be more taken by this experience. I remember very distinctly meeting a mother who was who had a five-year-old daughter or so who was very unwell with HIV. And I think that experience really stayed with me of seeing how other people's lives are and understanding that the whole world doesn't live in this very privileged existence that we had, especially here in Australia. But yeah, dad always thought that it would have had a more profound impact on me that I would come back this sort of changed person. And one of the advantages of being able to move to lots of different places is to not be too shaken by things, but also still reflective about them, perhaps. Let me throw a bush psychology theory at you. Now, Melbourne is a cosmopolitan place by Australian standards, but it's still tucked away at the bottom of the world, right? Surely both your dad's posture at the world and also that experience must have made the world feel available to you in a way that other children might not feel it was available to them because it's certainly been reflected in how you took on the world thereafter. Yeah, absolutely. I always had a sense of wanting to go on adventures and wanting to travel and that's what, you know, I say I worked from the age of 14 so I could save money so I could go on a trip as soon as I was old enough to travel on my own and it was always the thing that I was going to do and have continued to do. So I've been very lucky in that I've always been able to find those opportunities and I've also worked very hard to make them available to me as well. Of course. There are many surprises in how your journey has twisted and turned, but mm -hmm. the Masters of Teaching, where does that come into it? And presumably that wasn't immediately after school, was it? No, no. So I did a Bachelor of Creative Arts directly after school, which I really loved. And it was very important in terms of the critical academic skills that I learnt. But also I was very young and those sort of degrees don't really prepare you necessarily for a clear pathway forward in terms of a career, no. which I think has great advantage and worked very well for me, I think, because it's meant that I've been able to grow and fashion new things as I do lots of work, get lots more work experience really, and have lots of different adventures. I did that and then I worked a lot and went on lots of overseas holidays, lived in Vancouver for the last year of my undergrad, and then 
tried a different masters. I did a started a masters of cinema management and found it was not practical enough. Seemed too much like what I was already doing. Teaching had always been something that I'd thought about as an option, and yeah, in, in 2011, I thought was ready to do more study and wanted to try something new, and yeah, stepped into the world of teaching. And despite the fact I've never really taught in a classroom or worked in a school, I think the skills that I gained from the degree were incredibly valuable and have really helped me build my career. Let's talk about that career. Can you rattle off some of the places where you've worked? Sure. (laughs) I started working in museums in 2006 uh, at the National Gallery, and I've since worked at the National Gallery of Victoria, the Melbourne Museum, the Guggenheim in New York, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, the Museum of the Moving Image in Queens in New York, also the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, and now I'm working with the Museum of Art and Culture, Lake Macquarie, and the Multi-Arts Pavilion. Yeah, we'll get to that leap in a moment, but how much of moving around those quite iconic locations was deliberate and how much was just happy accidents? Um, A lot of it's just really been a happy accident. I think, I mean, I've put myself in places so that these opportunities are available, I guess. When I moved to the US, I'd actually just do the last six months of the master's component of my teaching degree. I was in New Jersey. It was an hour train ride away from the city. And I love, I still love New York. And I thought there's no time like this. This is, this is going to be the opportunity for me to try living in New York and so I might as well give it a go. So I moved to the city and started looking for work and was really lucky that the work that I did at the Guggenheim, which is for a company called Acoustic Guide who do the audio guides for lots of different museums, I had a really specific set of skills that I'd been doing at the National Gallery of Victoria working with the customer service team, supervising that team and doing this particular audio stuff that we did, which was very similar to what they were doing at the Guggenheim. And so I had this very unique (laughs) set of skills that meant that I was successful in getting that getting that job at the Guggenheim. But that was, you know, time and place sort of thing. It's really it is it is hard to get work in museums in the US. And I was really lucky, I think, that I was being open to working anywhere and the job that I applied for for Acoustic Guide, you know, it didn't say what museum you were going to be working at. They just wanted people who could do the work and I was just very lucky and privileged that I got to go to the Guggenheim every day for a year. When they're talking about romantic relationships, the term they use is emotionally available, right? I'm not sure what the professional equivalent is, but (laughs) it's apparent that there's an openness to possibility that has served you well. Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, If this was a different sort of podcast, I'd tell you it definitely works more in my um, professional life than my romantic life, Aaron. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Stand by, we might do the Lake Macway after dark. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think emotionally available is typically how I'd be described. Um, but yes, definitely. I, I like to follow the thread. I like to be open to the next thing that could happen. And it's a real mixture of keeping your eye out for opportunities and being open to the mysteries that might present themselves to you. And there's something to be said for throwing everything up in the air and seeing where it lands. 
Did you have moments of almost pinching yourself saying, I work at the Met, I work at the Guggenheim, these are fantasy locations for a young woman in the line of work that you're in? Um, absolutely. There was lots about my job at the Guggenheim that was not very glamorous. Um, and Surely that's true of your job here in Lake Macquarie. Surely that's true of getting up <laughs> at five o'clock and boiling the kettle at Safari. I mean, it's got to be true of being President of the United States, doesn't it? The idea that somehow having a big job is 24-7 glamour, is, <laughs> it's a myth, is it not? Uh, absolutely. No job is 100% glamour all the time, and that would be completely exhausting if it was. I guess with that particular job, I found that the privilege of getting to work at the Guggenheim and, you know, being inside that building and I would walk down the, I would walk down the ramp every single day. I made the time to make sure I walked down the ramp and check the things that I need to check and look at the art and experience the building. And that was just such a highlight and some of the job was not particularly challenging and some of it was you know there's always things that are hard about working in offices and working in particular in an office environment that was quite different to how I'd worked in Australia I think there's some differences into in how people operate um, and how workplaces operate between here in the US that were challenging but yeah absolutely it was such a joy when I was at the Met. It was just, you could go in early before visitors and just explore the gallery on your own. And there's not much to me that's more special than that. Just kind of wandering out around the Met alone, no security guards around and no visitors and just uh, seeing what you can find and um, yeah, getting lost in the collection was an incredible experience. How had the Pippa who left New York changed from the Pippa who had arrived in New York? <laughs> um, uh, a lot, <laughs> a lot. I really learned how to, it's an absolute cliche, but I really learned how to hustle in New York. We are very good at underselling ourselves in Australia and people shy away from their ambitions and talking about their ambitions and there's a tendency for people to just be like oh this is what I've got and I'm not going to brag about it and I'm not going to be very aggressive about the next thing that I want I'm just going to and in some ways it's because we're very lucky you can just enjoy your career and um, have a nice time and work hard but not too hard whereas in the US it's just or in New York in particular everyone is just always always looking for the next thing and it really pushes you to have to play that game you know you'd meet people constantly and you never knew who would be able to help you with your next big career move and everyone was always working really hard because you kind of have to to survive in the city if you're not ready to throw yourself into every opportunity then you're not going to get very much back I'm interested in how you make sense of that in your own mind. You can be at the Met and on the hustle and making moves and playing hard, but when you're back in your presumably not so glamorous one bedroom apartment somewhere and you're staring at the ceiling, you're still a girl from Melbourne. So how do you marry up that 
ambition, hustle, that blag, for want of a better word, with uh, what must be some fundamental self-doubt that we all carry. Definitely, definitely had lots of periods of self-doubt and some very challenging moments of trying to understand a different work culture and system and sometimes not a lot of sleep. I was working pretty hard at various points and there's definitely roll with it. If you did spend too much time lying in bed staring at the ceiling, worrying about it or what you could do, you potentially wouldn't. You just have to get up and keep going. And that's also one of the great and glorious things about New York as well is that there's just always an opportunity and always with some sort of adventure to be had. And so just try and find the best from the city and the experience. You don't spend a lot of time at home, you know. It's about a place where you go out and you experience things and you never know where you're going to end up and one minute you're struggling (laughs) to pay your rent and babysitting on the side and working behind bars and and then um, next thing you're at a Fifth Avenue penthouse party launching someone's book because you've got been invited by someone who knows someone and there's all these rich famous people there you know it's such a strange place you've just you've really just got to lean into it I think and try and switch off as much of that self-doubt as you can try and find the adventure in all of it even when it's hard how did we get from Fifth Avenue to Spears Point (laughs) (laughs) that's a good question (laughs) (laughs) I did my kind of three and a half years or so in in the US. I got to a point where I'd had a really great time and I'd really built up a bit of a career and had a clearer sense of what I wanted to do and where I was going. But I was also working many jobs and I had to kind of bartend through the winter previously to save up a lot of money to make it through the summer. And I was coming into another winter. The idea of, of having to keep doing that, of hustling and working so hard for what I wasn't sure what was going to happen. It seemed like I'd kind of run its course. I'd, I'd had a, a lot of fun. I'd seen a lot of things. I'd worked in a lot of places. So I moved back to Melbourne in 2016, started working at the Melbourne Museum in their education and public programs team and kind of worked my way up from there. And then I survived a lot of days in lockdown in Melbourne for most of last year and got to the end of that and was ready for something new. Was looking at jobs online and I saw this curator role in Lake Macquarie and I had absolutely no idea where in the world Lake Macquarie was. I'd been to Newcastle once but just for lunch and then (laughs) got straight out of here so never seen any of it. And um, yeah, just thought that the opportunity seemed really exciting and I knew that it was going to be very hard for me to find an opportunity outside of Australia because of the restrictions and it's very hard to come and go at the moment. So yeah, I think I was ready for a change and so yeah, just just got all kind of worked out. Once you arrived in Lake Macquarie and sized up the challenge before you, What surprised you, both for better and for worse, about what was ahead? I've I've never I've never worked in anywhere else in Australia or regionally um, in Australia before, so I was surprised by the passion and intelligence and dedication and 
hardworkingness of my team. You know, I kind of had this idea of this council, 35-hour week, lots of RDOs, very like laid back by the beach lifestyle. And I was very pleasantly surprised to find that everyone is very hardworking and very passionate about what they do. And that's been really exciting and surprising for me. I guess maybe that's a terrible assumption, but um, it's been really thrilling to get to be involved in a project like this with other people who are just excited about the possibility of the arts and doing something new in a place where that hasn't existed before. I've also been surprised by some differing of opinions on things. I think, I mean, I was living in the inner north of Melbourne and that tends to be a little bit of a bubble in terms of our politics and worldview. Uh, and so it's been interesting to go somewhere else where, you know, I interact with lots of different people who have lots of different attitudes and opinions about the world. And um, that's been really interesting to see that other side, I guess, of Australia. Presumably that presents a challenge as to what something like Map MEMA needs to be to its community, indeed to the people who fund it, does it? What it really excites me about the arts and about Matt Mima and um, the potential of the space is the ability for the arts and art experiences to connect people with one another and be potentially transformative experiences. And I am not precious about how those they come about. And I think the really beautiful thing about the space that we've built is it's, is that multi-purpose aspect to it and the fact that we can put on some potentially challenging art that people wouldn't have seen before in the area, but we could also put on performances and local musicians and theatre and other sort of opportunities for people to really find um, and engage all of those audiences. And my hope is that we get people coming through who potentially are coming down to see a band or they're coming down to see the space because they're curious or interested and get to have an experience that they that surprises them that they were otherwise that they otherwise wouldn't have thought about enjoying and that's what I really hope for with the opening exhibition that it's something that anyone can engage with and enjoy and you don't need to have uh, years of art history experience to understand or enjoy the exhibitions that we put on. Perhaps that answer covers a lot of this question, but let me play devil's advocate for a moment. Sure. I work really hard. I pay my taxes. Then I get my council rates as well. And you guys should be doing curb and guttering and picking up my garbage, giving some young avant-garde artist the opportunity to be seen is not what my money should be doing. Why is there value in arts at a local level? I totally understand where people are coming from. I really want to make the space accessible and engaging to all of those people. And I guess the thing that I would say to someone who is not interested and would rather some work happen around the the street that they see as more practical or tangible or going to affect their lives is that, Art is woven into everything that we do in our lives. And if you listen to music or you watch TV or you read a book 
or you visit a gallery or go to a play, you are engaging with the arts and there can be a tendency of the arts to close off from people who don't automatically want to go to a gallery. And for me, it's really important to try and find ways in for everybody and so maybe that's you know I'm really excited about the way the space can be a stage we can put on music and bands and the way that the space comes alive at night and there's illuminated artworks that are really fun and playful and colorful and interactive and I think that there's a sense of playfulness to Mathanema that I, I really hope anyone can engage with. And I'm, I'm hoping that people give us a bit of a chance because I don't, I don't, I don't think it needs to be for everybody. Um, but I think there are ways in which we can use our programming to reach as many people as possible. And hopefully by coming out and seeing other people who like the same things as you or um, your community and coming together to ex- experience that, will be a powerful experience the community will find value in. Is there not a completely inverted counter-argument to my devil's advocacy as well that says you shouldn't need $4,000 and a plane ticket to go to the Met to experience art that should be woven into the fabric of every community? Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's what, that's <laughs> what we want to do and I think, uh, I always find it really fascinating when people travel, you know, people who don't go to gallery spaces in Australia get on the plane <laughs> and then spend three days, you know, going to the Met to, because it's what you do. Or, or se- seeing the Mona Lisa from 300 yards away with 14,000 exactly. other people, right? <laughs> when I used to work at the NGV, we have had a few shows of, you know, we had a Guggenheim exhibition and the Mona exhibition and people get really excited to see these international works that have been shipped over. And But I always found it a bit frustrating that people would come in thousands to pay to see these shows and we would have all of these artworks by the same artists already in the NGV's collection that you could just go up and see for free. I think some of that sort of speaks to the Australian psyche in a way that we just don't think that what we're doing is or what we've got is ever going to be as impressive as as what you might find on the world stage. I think that's a bit unfair, you know. I think that there's so much talent and there's so much possibility and, you know, maybe galleries need to do more to reach those audiences, but also, yeah, maybe we need to sort of shift our thinking about the value of art and the value of the art that we have and just because it hasn't been reprinted onto a million tea towels doesn't mean that it's not going to be an, a transformative and exciting experience for people to see something. And I guess for us or for me as an arts worker, it's about shifting that narrative and um, trying to change the story so people can come to a gallery and they can come to a local museum and we can find ways in for people to have an experience that is hopefully even more transformative than seeing the Mona Lisa from 300 yards. (laughs) There appears to be a big upside and a big downside to our, if you want to call it unkindly, a cultural cringe, if you want to call it (laughs) kindly, a a humility that we have down here at the bottom of the world that Mm -hmm. on the one hand it can make us feel unworthy, at the other end of the scale it sounds like you would 
feel like your Lake Mac crew could hold their own putting on something at the Guggenheim? Oh, absolutely. Um, give us a chance. Like, you know, <laughs> hand the keys over, over and let us see what we can do. <laughs> it actually does sound very New York to uh, have an exhibition of obscure artists from regional Australia. <laughs> we, we, we could make that happen, right? That sounds like a great idea. I, I think it's changing and I think that there's – it's, I, I think it's a really exciting space to be in and the challenges of engaging audiences and uh, working with our community, I think also great, cre- can create and hopefully will create great opportunities for us because we have to work a bit harder for it. There are lots of big museums in the world that can can open up their doors and put on great shows, but people are going to go to them anyway. I think there's something fun in the challenge of not necessarily having that assumption and having to to work to put on great things to get people through the door. And maybe that means things that are a bit outside the the typical mould. Do you marvel at what life can do to a person and for a person because that girl in Melbourne probably couldn't imagine the safari park and the girl <laughs> in the safari park probably couldn't imagine Lake Macquarie, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, I definitely think that I have had lots of adventures that I wasn't expecting and would be very, you know, looking back when I was trying to work out what I was going to do when I was 20 and in my undergrad. I think that Pippa would be very pleased with how things have all turned out. But I, I also think, I don't know, I've always just sort of taken things in my stride, <laughs> accepted them a bit. So Yeah, I get that impression well and truly. Do you think you'll ever stand up the front of a class and use that Masters of Teaching? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> who knows? Look, I've taught a lot in galleries and having that qualification, you know, led to the work I got to do at the Met and the work that I did at Mo- at Momi and that led to the museum and Acne and I've worked with thousands of students and have had the chance to to teach in in that sort of very informal setting but I can't imagine I, I can't imagine I'm going back to the classroom, but, but, but who knows, you know? If we've learned nothing else from this conversation, plenty happens to you that you can't imagine right now, so <laughs> who knows? Exactly. Never say never. Pippa, there are many things I love about your work and your attitude, but perhaps the thing I love the most is that somebody who could be anywhere in the world has chosen us and is bringing her expertise and experience and energy to what we have here in the Hunter and specifically Lake Macquarie. It has been a joy to spend some time with you and can't wait to do so at Map Mima as well. Thank you for being a part of the Lake Mac Way. My pleasure. Thank you, Aaron. This has been fun. The Lake Mac Way is produced by Lake Macquarie City Council in partnership with Axe Media International.